Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Everybody, welcome to this bonus episode here on Mindshift Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Quinn Haycock. What we've got here is actually the second half of a conversation that I did actually a few months ago. Now, I've actually been waiting for Rachel Bernstein to clear her queue of shows that she's had in the pipeline, and I've had a bunch of stuff coming out as well. So I'm really excited to finally put this episode out. So what we did was we recorded two back-to-back episodes a while ago, So if you want to hear the first half of that conversation, what you need to do is head over to the Indoctrination Podcast, and that's spelled capital I, capital N, Indoctrination, with Rachel Bernstein, and there you will find the first half of our conversation where a lot of it we talk about my story growing up in evangelicalism and then my deconstruction, my journey getting out, and then we recorded the second half, which is what we're about to play now in a minute here. I wanted to ask Rachel, because she's a licensed therapist, she has a lot of clients who come to her who are actually still in their religious system, and it's causing them a lot of mental health problems, and it's such an irony. This is one of the sort of the deepest, darkest secrets, certainly with evangelical Christians in America, and that is that their religious system, their belief system is actually causing them mental health problems, and of course, maybe they've gone to their pastor, maybe they were told to pray about it more, read their Bible more, but it didn't work. Their quote-unquote counseling, Christian counseling, didn't do the job. So they go now seek out a person like Rachel. So I really wanted to get inside of those sort of experiences that Rachel's had with her clients as we discuss this really, really important issue of not only how does religion affect our mental health while we were in the religion, maybe that describes you, and you've then come out. What have you lost, and how do you rebuild? How do you regain a sense of your authentic self. And so toward the end of the show, we're going to get into resources that are available for you should you be seeking to regain or rebuild a sense of identity leaving religion. So let's get into this topic here with Rachel Bernstein as we look at the effects of religion on our mental health. I am back now with Rachel Bernstein. We have just finished a fantastic conversation that I really hope you have listened to on the Indoctrination podcast. A lot of it was about my story, but we started touching on some really important points that we're going to cover in this now, which is the second half of our conversation. So welcome into Mindship Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be here and to continue the conversation. I know we have a lot to to talk about, a lot that a lot of interests we share. Mm, absolutely. One of the biggest things we started touching on was like the I- issue of cult psychology beliefs, how that affects people in terms of their mental health. What I'm interested in. So you're a therapist. You deal with people who are, I guess, in religion as well as those that have left religion. Do you find that there's a common sort of 
pattern of symptoms that you deal with, that you see over and over in your clients, that how, in other words, how religion has affected them in terms of their mental health. Right. I do. Yes. So I've been doing this work for about 30 years. And so I've seen people all along, as you're mentioning, sort of from being in to being out. And also these gradations that I remember learning from my colleague, Lee Marsh, this idea of being spiritually in and physically in, then mm, physically in and spiritually out, you know, as you're starting Mm -hmm. to transition, then being physically out, but still a little spiritually in because you haven't really made the break yet. And then being spiritually out and physically out. So there are a lot of um, gradations in the middle between in and out. And I think, you know, when I work with people who have left, of course, it depends upon their experience, the intensity of their experience. Also, if they were born and raised with it, as opposed to coming to it later, if it's the only thing they've ever known, basically, and they haven't interacted with the world or been in the world without it yet. And so this is their first introduction to life without it. Mm -hmm. But I think how it affects people is that uh, it oftentimes when they leave, they have this mix of emotions, they feel liberated. And they also feel anxious, because they feel untethered. And they don't have the answers and they don't have the, the go-to person. They don't have the discipler. They don't have the next person they are used to talking to all the time to get the answers. Uh, even if those answers were wrong, still, there's something very calming about having the go-to person. Uh, and then at the same time that they're feeling kind of untethered, unanchored, they're feeling free. Uh, what I also think affects people is that they've often been taught to not trust themselves. Mm. That without that construct and without someone managing you and without God watching your every move, you're going to do horrible things. You can't be trusted. You're going to make bad decisions. You're going to be a bad person. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt other people. You're going to sin like crazy. Yeah, out of control out of control. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, for some people, it's interesting, because I've seen it being a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy, that they just think that's what's going to happen. So they might as well just go for it. Right? All bets are off. off, Right. And then they end up doing a lot of things they regret, because that's not really Mm. who they are, either. They're not acting in their life, they're still reacting to what they were warned about what was going to happen to them, and they made it come true. But then other people are so calmed by knowing they actually have an inner mm, ethical core that they can rely on and that they have to learn to fine tune and to trust, to know that actually they can trust themselves. So there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of freedom. And, and usually there are these sort of polar opposite feelings simultaneously and, and mixed in also with a sense of loss because there's there's a sense of loss when you leave something that makes you feel sure there's also a sense of loss when you leave a community or you leave maybe the only community you you had mm-hmm. uh, or your family or you're shunned you know and then sometimes people also want to be able to get involved in spiritual life but are afraid they really mm-hmm. they need to kind of learn whom to trust 
and to not be drawn into the person who has the absolutes uh, and and to actually go into um, an environment <clears throat> that operates more in the middle where you can yeah. take what you like and leave the rest and that's all okay. Yeah, find a balance somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, going back to your point about these people going crazy after they leave religion, I remember talking to John Atak, who's a he's an ex Scientologist. I don't know. I don't know if you're aware of his work. Oh but yeah, he's a we British know each guy, other very well. fascinating. Oh yeah. Actually, he's not only is he a genius at everything, but he also <laughs> knows a lot about horticulture. By the way, if you ever have hmm. any questions about plants, he said, "I'm curious." He's quite about a gardener, what, I guess. Yes. He, because he's yes. in England, he said, show me, you know, the the flora uh, it, near your home. And I showed him and he said, hey, by the way, did you happen to know that that vine um, right by your front door is completely poisonous? <laughs> oh, that's said, good to know. No, I just thought it was pretty. So thank you okay. for that. So well, nightshade grown by the front right. door. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Uh, yes. Thank you, John. He's wonderful. And he actually had the the first book on Amazon that was ever taken off of Amazon through Scientology pressure. Yes, which he's come under a lot of pressure. The, his book, A Piece of Blue Sky, it just showed how much information he had in it mm -hmm. that Scientology did not want people to know. But yes. anyway, go ahead. Well, yeah. So, John, one of these days I'm going to get over to Nottingham where he lives and actually nice. have a visit when COVID kind of relaxes and all that someday. Not right. that far from me. I'll, I will make that journey. But one of the things that John said to me was that, you know, when you're in a religion for a long time, especially if you come in as a younger person or you're raised in it, it's almost like you have this adolescence that's stunted, as you were talking about before. And it struck me that what John said is that when you leave, you're kind of making up for lost time. And mm -hmm. that explains for, you know, why some of that crazy behavior goes on, you know, guys will grow their hair out or women will cut all their hair off or dye it pink or go get a bunch of tattoos or, or whatever it might be. Just kind of go nuts because yeah. they're trying to relive that sort of adolescent period that they never had, you mm -hmm. know, but of course people in the they're saying, see that person, they're out of control. That's what happens when you walk away you're lost for sure. And now you're out of control. And, and what people don't realize when you, when you're raised, I think in an environment that is so black and white and it's thinking that you're either good or evil or things are bad or things are good. This idea that when people leave and they just go for it and they get all their tattoos and piercings mm -hmm. and everything else uh, and do everything they couldn't do sexually and all of it, that doesn't mean that's where they're going to stay. I mean, it's just a pendulum swing from one extreme to another. And typically there is a settling into the middle, but you're right. While someone is swinging to the opposite extreme, that is when people within a particular church group will say, aha, see, Told you. but that's just the first step. They're getting kind of stuck noticing people on their first journey before they settle in the middle. Before they find that again, finding that balance, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And I noticed too, cause I love tattoos. You know, and I already I had tattoos before when I was a Christian, but they were always, you know, up high so you could cover them with a shirt sleeve and all that. And at a certain point, I started to realize, you know, I just don't care what people think. And that's mm -hmm. part of that deconstruction as well. You know, getting more and more ink, more tattoos. You think this is who I am. If, if you don't like what I am, I guess we'll have to deal with that. But mm -hmm. I'm not going to bother covering this up. I'm not going to hide it. This is who I am that's the way it is. And that's all part of that. Like you say, finding that sort of balance, finding that path right. that works for you. Right. 
exactly. You can't just get rid of the tattoos, though. <laughs> you can't just, well, you can laser them off, but it's a hell of a lot of work. I'm not doing that. I spent too many hours, too much money sitting in a chair, you know, getting buzzed with needles. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it also goes to this idea of you can't judge a book by its cover, which mm. I think has been an interesting thing for people now that a lot of people are tatted that, you know, that um, it doesn't mean that this person is, you know, going to be doing out of control things or isn't trustworthy or has been in prison. It just means they like tattoos. Uh, I know I, I met with someone who was raised in a family that was a cult. It was actually a, a kind of Christian cult with the grandfather as the leader. They lived in a very secluded area. And so it can happen within family systems too. And outside any watchful eye, then any interpretation of any Bible passage can happen without it being part of a mainline anything. So her view or her vision of Christianity is very different than anyone who would call themselves Christian, I think. But I know when I met with her, she had a tattoo that went across kind of her clavicle from one side to the other around and sort of mm, just sternum. around her neck, right, sternum. And it was in script and I couldn't see, it was a very fancy script. And I, and I just said, uh, what does that say? And she said, well, I'll tell you what it says, but what it really says is I had really bad judgment when I first came out of this <laughs> yeah. group and I was just going for broke. And so it is a sign yep. of liberation. It kind of doesn't matter what it says because of what it really says. Uh, mm. So that was an interesting, that was an interesting idea that she said it was bad judgment, but because she was just exercising her freedom. Yep. They are permanent. I mean, like I say, you can get cover ups, you can get lasered off, but I mean, I've still got tattoos that I got when I was a Christian that are religious ones. And I've thought about covering them up and I thought, no, you know, actually that's part of the narrative. Mm -hmm. That's part of the story. I don't sure. regret getting them because it. I can tell people when I was getting that piece, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that's what it meant to me at the time. Right. However, I've got other things since then that I've given a lot of thought to that I can, you know, in, enter into that narrative as it were. It tells a longer, bigger story, you know. So, yeah, but I, I think you're right. If you're leaving a religion and you're thinking about getting a tattoo, put a lot of thought into it. <laughs> yeah. Don't just walk in off the street when you right. see a shop and go, I'm going to pick something off the wall and stick it on my neck. That's right. not just good because idea. I can. <laughs> right. Just yeah. because you can do it. But like right. you, what we were talking about before, you have to deal with the consequences of that right. decision. If you're prepared to deal with having a giant scorpion on your neck or something, sure, go for it, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, one of the things I was going to ask you, we were talking about in the earlier show on your podcast about Robert J. Lifton's Eight Markers of Cults and his thought reform in the psychology of totalism. And one of the things I appreciate about Lifton's work is that not only does he identify these sort of eight markers, he also talks about the psychological effects of each one. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you'd be interested in commenting about some of the things, because like, for example, he talks about milieu control and mystical manipulation. So for example, in my experience as an evangelical, I was coming into these worship services in church and it was this amazing, wonderful music and the lighting and the, the, the ambiance. It was an experience of God. So I thought, then I realized now 
what Lipton calls the psychology of the pawn. We were being manipulated. We were being controlled. And that does something, that kind of environment does do something to people. What do you hear from like clients that are into that sort of thing that have had that experience in terms of feeling like a pawn? Oh, very much so. I think, you know, there is something about the environment that gets us caught up in something that gives us a sense of fervor, that gives us that kind of awe, sure. like Yuvala Orr talks about, our colleague. I think it's a wonderful thing to study uh, Robert J. Lifton. I mean, he, he had so much to say about this. And uh, there was also, um, there is also a man, um, Robert Cialdini, who has written books on persuasion from a business model, but he mm -hmm. spoke at a cult conference because it's used in cults. Sure. But he also talked about persuasion, kind of the way that you groom people to be ready to be persuaded. And so much of it is about, like, if you see commercials for a particular medicine, there's someone in a lab coat but they're an extra or they, they're whatever, an actor. They're an actor. They, you know, they have no idea about medicine, but because they're wearing a lab coat, you listen to what they're saying. Same thing with having somebody on a podium or someone who's wearing a clerical collar or somebody who looks the part. Then if you are surrounded, there, there's the sort of so social psychological piece mm -hmm. of having people around you who seem so happy and seems to they they look like they have found it and yeah. which so, was a slogan back in the 70s i found uh -huh. it right i found it yeah. that's right exactly yeah, yeah. that's right i remember i remember yeah. the bumper, bumper sticker. stickers yeah. all over america <laughs> that wow. was campus crusade bill bright i found it i found yeah. it brilliant right. marketing scheme for christianity Incredible. That's right. Mm -hmm. oh, I remember yep. that. Yeah. <laughs> it takes you right back. It does. I'm picturing them on the back <laughs> of station wagons. So there you go. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I, I think, you know, what you have also, it not only is that that social psychology of, you know, you, you think, wow, if I'm not excited about this, there must be something wrong with me because everyone else mm. seems so happy. You don't find out till later that a lot of people were just caught up in that moment or they were also kind of faking it kind of, faking it until they kind of got it. So make it to make it right. So not everyone's smile and look of transcendence is real. So that's good to know if you're having doubts in a room of a lot of people and you think you're the only one, you are never the only one. Mm -hmm. uh, Everyone else know, might be thinking it too. Right. Exactly. So, but then if there's music and all of that, then it connects you to that environment and to that moment in a multi-sensory way, uh, which is very compelling. And so I will often tell people once they say, oh, it was amazing. And it was, you know, by, by bonfire at night and all of this, I will sometimes say, okay, take the teachings that you learned Stand in your bathroom by yourself right. <laughs> and recite them to yourself and see if they have that same transcendent feeling or if it was that you were all kind of arm in arm with people at midnight with bonfire. that bonfire. Mm -hmm. Yep. I can remember that. In fact, even at Christian camp, when I was a kid, we went every summer and part of the highlight of the week was at the end of the day, we'd go out to this wooded area with the bonfire. And we'd sing songs in the darkness with just, you know, focusing on the flames. And then the speaker would come up and like you say, have this amazing message about relying on God or whatever the topic was. And man, it was powerful. Damn. It really was. But I would say that now 
is is mystical manipulation it's milieu control Mm -hmm. you know and the other thing that that lifton talks about is this idea that guilt and shame are two of the biggest levers that that can be used to motivate and manipulate people this idea of you know they calls the demand for purity these groups and cults they set this impossibly high standard for our behavior or whatever it might be and then of course we're going to fail which then leads to the cult of confession we then have mm-hmm. to confess our sins or our shortcomings and find forgiveness and then we're in this cycle yeah. and that has got to be hugely psychologically damaging getting in that cycle isn't it it is Hugely damaging. It's circular. It's very Mm -hmm. hard to step away from it. I think, you know, one of the things that I've I've noticed is uh, that is such a shame that people who run cultic groups, uh, I mean, there's some who really believe in what they're saying. They really do think they're a messenger from God. And, you know, it doesn't mean their group is any less potentially dangerous. Like I think of Heaven's Gate, you know, where I think he really believed in the mothership and, Mm -hmm. you know, but still people die. So you still want to watch out, but still when you have people where you know that they're just showmen or show women um, Mm -hmm. and they're tapping into people's consciences where they are, they know that if they can say certain things uh, where someone is made to feel doubted, And then that person feels they need to then prove themselves and prove that they are good people, or they have to feel somehow like they need, they deserve punishment uh, or being in service because the need to assuage some guilt that you have people in charge who are going to use the nicest part of people to control them and to keep them there. But yes, I think people want to be able to have relief from feeling guilt it is something that stays with people for life if they have a conscience. And so anything that makes you say, I mean, I see this a lot with people in cults where they say it was really nice to not have to be upset. Uh, if someone got sick, well, that's, they brought it on themselves. So we didn't even have to mm-hmm. feel bad for them um, because this was God's punishment. So it just was wow. all part of the plan. And it's a, it is a great sense of relief from having real feelings. It is. I wonder, maybe in the last section, we could talk about even the, the realm of suicide and religion, because there was a story that came out just a couple of weeks ago as we're doing this recording. A guy that I had on the podcast back in 2017, his name was Steve Austin. He was kind of a progressive Christian. And we did a show when I was still kind of a progressive Christian at the time. We talked about he had survived a suicide attempt when he was a young man. Mm-hmm. And he decided to end it all and life was going horribly wrong for him. Well, just a few weeks ago, he did commit suicide. Sadly, he did end his life. Now, I don't know all the circumstances that led to him committing suicide, but going back and listening to that conversation from over four years ago was really, it was enlightening, but also disturbing because he made the comment that at the time when he told his mom he had been sexually abused as a young boy and she just said, well, let's pray about it. And that's the end of it, you know, and he says, looking back at it as an adult, he said, you know, that was kind of taking this magic Jesus pill. We'll just pray about it and it'll be fine. And it wasn't fine. And that Mm -hmm. led to, of course, a lot of other mental health issues later on in the life triggering and things like that. I don't know the extent to which, you know, he, that led to him finally committing suicide recently, but 
I mean, that's the darkest possible place that a person could be, you know, and I don't know if he wasn't able to reconcile his religion with his mental health issues. I'm not sure. Have you found that to be an issue as well? And perhaps some of your clients? Yes, I have. It's very upsetting. You know, there are some things that propel me to continue doing this work. And that's Mm -hmm. one of those things. Because I think people do feel desperate going to his story. I don't know his, his story at all sure. personally. And, but I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that he did this. It makes sense from a particular psychological perspective when something bad happens to you and there isn't justice. And the mm-hmm. victim is the one who needs to put it behind them. The victim is the one who needs to pray it away. And the perpetrator goes off and does it again and and probably even feels more motivated to do it because they know they're going to get away with it because the person they do it to if they have some sort of natural negative impact from it they're the ones who are going to need to do something to get past that i mean talk about being able to really set the stage for people crossing boundaries knowing they can and Mm -hmm. that's happened way too often within religious context and uh, things are covered up and the victims and the victims also are the ones who are are really abused further by the way they're treated after but people will often think about committing suicide when they think there isn't another alternative when they really believe what they've been taught that this is the only way, this is the only truth. This is the, the true Bible. This is the only way to have a relationship with God. And as soon as you leave or doubt or have thoughts that are negative, then you're going to be going to this other place that is godless. And uh, so you don't really have a choice. And when people leave it or they doubt it, they might still be of that kind of mindset that there isn't anywhere for them to go. People who are feeling backed into a corner often choose to escape through suicide. And it's very sad because if they're able to get the help that they need and reach out and get support while they're backed into that corner emotionally or spiritually, they'll be able to find where there's a door or a window that's open that they can Mm -hmm. climb out of, but they don't know that's there until they talk about it. So it happens way too often. There are a lot of suicides connected to Scientology Mm-hmm. A lot of suicides uh, connected to other groups that are these large group awareness trainings where you're pushed to expose things about yourself and you're pushed, you know, to, to go days without sleep and uh, literally to the breaking point. To the, exactly right. Exactly. On many levels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, we see like a lot of Mormon teens, gay Mormon teens. That's been yeah. another one. There's been... Mm-hmm many examples of a teenager raised in a Mormon family that's closeted gay person that that's been told all their life, gay people are going to hell in our religion and they're never going to get to heaven. The only alternative is suicide. So it appears. And so, yeah, that happens as well. It's a sad thing. And of course, I mean, look at this breaking story. I mean, as we're doing this recording now, all this stuff's coming out about the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't know if you're following that. Yes, yes. That's exactly what you just described. They've created a, a context or a culture in which abusers know they're going to get away with it because the victim will be silenced and shamed and shunned. And so they just keep on abusing. And where's the way out? 
for for the victims when you're silenced and blamed and shunned and it's a terrible you know horrible dysfunctional environment it is it really is i have a, a cousin who was raised in ireland and he has a lot of feelings about the church um mm. but also was was abused by uh, a, a church choir director who had a history of it and was just moved from church to church parish to parish. Yeah, it happens a lot and sadly um he said that he never could tell his parents, but for a different reason than we might assume with other people who are worried about shame or having it directed on them or they're making it up or whatever that, that is horrible to blame the victim. He said that he never told his parents because he knew his father would go and kill him <laughs> and he okay. didn't want his father to go to jail. And, <laughs> right. uh, and I thought, actually, that's a good reason. I mean, that, that's mm. definitely being supported. But yeah. I, I said that, but that's interesting that your father would have felt like he needed to take it on himself. And he said, yes, mm -hmm. because the church wouldn't do anything about it, nor exactly. would the police. Exactly. Because they were connected with the church mm -hmm. and in awe of the people there and kind of kowtowing to their pressure. So people do have to take it into their own hands, which is crazy. It's crazy. Well, I know we said that was the last question, but actually I thought of one more question. Now <laughs> that we're nearly finishing up, what can you give us in terms of resources? So let's say we've been having these conversations about mental health and religion, and you might be thinking, wow, I need to you know, educate myself a little bit more. Where are some good places that people can go in terms of resources to learn more about this top, this really important topic? Right. Okay. So first of all, there is, you know, your podcast uh, with mm, all the different guests you. and, and your, your experiences and the insights that you share and all the research that you've done. And then uh, the International Cultic Studies Association that I'm on the board of, but for, I'm on the board of it for a reason that Mm -hmm. uh, it's a place where people can come to talk about their experience. And it doesn't have to be that it is necessarily from a group that everyone knows to be a cult. It could be an unknown group. It could be a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation mm -hmm. because the, the International Cultic Studies Association really helps to talk about not just cults, but the nature of the relationship between the leader and the follower. And that's what makes it cultish. So that's why it could just be two people. Uh, mm -hmm. or thousands and thousands. Um, but they have conferences and they have a website and, you know, they're, they're a good resource. I think also Steve Hassan's website, Freedom of Mind, is very good. And um, if people are looking for a support group, I run a, a, well, I see clients individually and families together who are planning to try to do an intervention, even small interventions, like how do we have this conversation differently with the person we love? So it goes a little better. I do a lot of coaching with that. But I think there's also a former member support group that I run every other Wednesday night in Pacific Standard Time. There's also an organization that I helped to put together. I'm no longer involved because I don't have the time, but it's wonderful. And it's called Stronger After. And mm. it offers five, not official sessions, even though the people are basically therapists who are doing this, um, but kind of five meetings with someone who recently is out, who might not have the resources to get counseling, but want to know if what they're experiencing is quote unquote normal. And if there are other people who are feeling the same way, and it helps to educate people about 
what to expect, what the challenges are, and, and what the help can be and other resources to get help for those mm-hmm. kinds of issues. So yeah, I think also going to the website for the International Cultic Studies Association, you find out about other groups because they have a whole resource list. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very just good. a good place to start, I believe. It's a good resource. And then, of yeah. course, there's still available the Conference on Religious Trauma that was just held back in May. Mm-hmm. My good friend Janice Selby put that on in early, middle of May. And so you can actually still get the recordings. All the sessions were done online, so they were all recorded. So that's another resource as well. So then finally, how can people find your podcast and where's the best place to get a hold of you? Right. So they can find my podcast, I think, wherever podcasts are available, which is a lovely Mm -hmm. thing. It's called Indoctrination. And uh, unfortunately, there's actually a... um, shoot there's uh i think it's a group or i don't know but youtube or whatever but it's called indoctrination not spelled with the i do a capital i and a capital n because indoctrination but there is one that's that thank you there's one that is connected to QAnon followers that is called indoctrination so i have interesting people who write to me uh (laughs) tell me about the latest q drop (laughs) exactly It's, it's actually been good i've been getting a lot of information all right. Um, and so people can check it out. There's a new episode that comes out every Wednesday. And mm-hmm. uh, if people want to find me, they can find me through my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com uh, or email me bernsteinlmft, my license, lmft at gmail.com or call me what, you know, um, we can put things in the bylines. I can give you my numbers, but I mm-hmm. think. Also on Facebook, there's Facebook page for the podcast and on Twitter, and there are just many different places to find me. But it's best if you want to be in touch with me to email me at Bernstein LMFT. Okay. Thank you so much, Rachel. I've absolutely not only loved meeting you, but actually having these wonderful conversations. I want to hear the the comments and feedback from people from our episode we did on your podcast as well. So I'm interested to hear what people say. So thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for all that you do. 